Yeah. Hey, we've had some excellent talks from two Tims recently. Tim Foskett and Tim Small. So thanks, Tim. It was brilliant. I listened to it uh, fairly recently, but wow. Loved it. Loved it. And um, thank you, Tim Foskett, too. Excellent stuff. Um, and Chris McEwen is going to preach next week. So it's great that we have so many great preachers in our church. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, Paul is talking about giving up rights for the gospel. And uh, last week in chapter 8, as Hope mentioned, he discusses the whole business of food offered to idols and the issues that surround that. And he shows the Corinthian Christians what it means both to have rights, but also then to be able to give up those rights for the sake of the gospel. And today I want to look at chapter 9, 1 to 18, but I also need to look at chapter, did I say chapter 9, 1 to 18? Uh, But I also want to look at verses 19 to 27 because I realised I needed to see the whole trajectory of Paul's argument over the whole chapter to understand what he's actually saying. And so I got Chris's permission to dip into next week's passage Uh, But he's going to unpack that at much greater length next week. But in chapter 9, we see Paul's model of giving up rights for the sake of the gospel. Uh, He gives us examples from his own life. And then at the end of this whole section in 1 Corinthians, that is chapters 8 to 10, at the end of that, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So what Paul is saying here is about what does it mean to follow Jesus as Christians? Jesus who gave up his rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2, though in very nature he was God, he did not count equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but gave up his rights. Um, took the form of a servant, humbled himself even to death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and raised him above all. And Paul is holding up his own example of doing that, which is really Christ's example, and saying, hey, this is what it means to be following Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about his authority, firstly. Secondly, his actions, how he gave up his rights. And thirdly, his rationale for giving up his rights. So his authority, his actions, and his rationale. Firstly, his authority. He says in verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then he backs that up with, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In other words, you can know I'm an apostle because I have seen the resurrected Jesus, which is the absolute necessary qualification for being an apostle. Now, many people today don't understand what Paul means by Jesus' resurrection. They think that the idea of resurrection appearances of Jesus was simply the coming of faith of the early church. They had internal spiritual experiences. And since the Corinthians had more internal 
spiritual experiences than, than most, these people say, well, of course, this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about resurrection appearances. He's talking about internal spiritual experiences. But Paul is clear here, as he is in chapter 15, that the appearances of Jesus were a time-limited sequence in history. And in fact, he only just got in as the door was being shut, so to speak. And he says in chapter 15, Jesus last of all appeared to me as to one untimely born. But that constituted Paul as an apostle. In Paul's usage of the word apostle, it's somebody who has personally witnessed the risen Jesus and who therefore is part of the foundation of the church. Uh, that the uh, apostolic witness <coughs> was the body of people who could say, we have actually seen the risen Jesus. And Paul says, yeah, I've seen Jesus. And then also Paul's apostleship is demonstrated by the fact that he's successfully planted a church in Corinth. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord, he says. Uh, for Paul, the second thing about being an apostle is not just that he's seen Jesus, but that he's been able to announce Jesus to the Corinthians and that a church has been established as a result. Verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. <clears throat> Paul is an apostle because he's seen Jesus, and now the fact that he's planted successfully a church in Corinth mean, means his claim is genuine. And so verse 3 says, this is my defence. Uh, to those who sit in judgment on me. And then he says, don't we have the right to food and drink? In other words, if I am an apostle, don't I have the right to be provided for? As I'm preaching the gospel and announcing it, I have the right to be supported by those who come to faith. And then in verse 5, it's fascinating. He says, he has a second right. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that is Peter. This is the only place where we discover that the other apostles, including Peter, travelled with their spouses. Clearly, they went around as a couple, which was a very good idea, because they were married. And who wants to be separated for any length of time? I believe C.T. Studd, the famous missionary who went to Africa, left his wife and five or six children at home for 30 years. Uh, that is not the practice of the apostles, says Paul. No, the pattern of the apostles is that they were given their food and that they take their wives with them. And they don't have to work for their living because their apostolic ministry is their work. And verse 6, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Paul and Barnabas are the only apostles who, did, who went on working on the side so that they could support themselves. But the normal pattern was that the apostles were provided for by the Christian churches they served. Not only provided for themselves, but their families also. And provided for enough that they didn't have to work. That was the normal practice of the other apostles. 
and he's saying that's a right thing. That's completely right. That's the way it should be. And then he sets out a whole series of arguments. I'm surprised by that. He gives us six arguments to support that that is right. That those who minister the gospel ought to be provided for by those they minister to. Six arguments. Firstly, this is the pattern of the other apostles. This is happening for the other apostles. So if we're apostles, surely it should happen to us as well. Second argument. It's the normal order of human life. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Imagine you're conscripted as a soldier. You shouldn't have to pay for yourself. You shouldn't have to provide your needs for yourself. That'd be crazy. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? In other words, Paul, Paul is saying, I've been planting the vineyard of the Lord. Surely I ought to be paid for my trouble. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? How silly would that be? That's the normal order of things. People get paid for their work. The third argument is that it's not just the human order of things. It's got to do with God's law as well. Verse 9, doesn't the law say the same thing? And he quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. In other words, if you've got an ox and it's threshing your grain for you, you don't stop it eating from that grain as it wants. It's allowed to eat that grain. And then he says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? And there were rabbinic debates over this text as to whether it did refer to oxen or whether it was a metaphor like the ones that Paul has just used. And I think Paul would say, actually, God is concerned with the oxen. But this text he takes, and I think there's a case for this in Deuteronomy 25. He takes it to refer that those who work for the gospel full time, um, they are to be paid by the people of God for that work. The same principle comes up in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Those who work for the gospel should live by the gospel. And so Paul uses another argument, the fourth reason, that we should reap from what we sow. Verse 10, yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in that harvest. There's no point plowing a field if you're not going to be able to eat from the produce that's produced. And so verse 11, if we have sown spirit, spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right to, of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? In other words, we should be paid. We should at least get subsistence, food and drink. So that's the basic argument Paul has for That's his right. A, a, a worker deserves his pay. And Paul is a hard worker and he ought to be able to rely on being supported by the Corinthians. The fifth argument he uses is the example of priests in the temple. Verse 13, the priests eat from whatever takes place. This may surprise us that the sacrifices offered at the temple in Jerusalem were like a big barbecue. I think Tim was saying this last week with the pagan temples as well, that they ate the meat that was sacrificed. Some was given to the priests, some was given to the families who brought the animal to be sacrificed. 
And Paul is saying, the priests get a cut of the meat. That's how they get paid. And so surely we ought to get a cut of your resources if we are ministering to you. And Paul has already said that the church as a whole and individually, one by one, are God's temple. The Spirit lives in us. And so there's a parallel between temple workers and gospel workers. Paul believes the gospel, which works through the power of the Spirit, creates Christians individually and corporately as God's new temple. So the ministry of the gospel is an extension and a rejuvenation of the ministry of the priesthood in the temple. So gospel workers ought to live off their ministry. And sixthly, the final and crunching argument is verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. We've got a clear word from Jesus that those who proclaim the gospel should get a living from it. In Luke 10, verse 7, Jesus says the labourer is worthy of his hire. And he says that in the context of proclaiming the gospel. So Paul is using six different arguments to show that he has every right to live off of the resources of the Corinthian church. Six different reasons. It's the pattern of the other apostles. It's the normal uh, human order of being paid for work. The law teaches it. You should be able to reap from what you sow. It's the way of the priests in the temple and Jesus commanded it. What a strong array of arguments. He's saying in the strongest possible way, you should be paying me. But, verse 15, I have not used any of these rights. I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I am not writing this to secure provisions from you. That's not what I'm on about. Uh, Paul doesn't want to be paid. But Paul is the exception. And all too often the church has taken the exception and made it the rule and taken the rule and made it the exception. So before we look at Paul's exception and how Paul does things, let's stop and think about our own responsibilities with money. If Paul gives us six reasons for supporting gospel ministry, including Jesus' own command, we must see that gospel preachers and their families should be paid uh, by the people they preach to for the from the recipients of their ministry. Not just the gospel preacher, but also his family are to be cared for and supported. And they're to be paid for by those who benefit from the ministry. Now, think about that in terms of church finances. The responsibility of the recipients of gospel ministry is to provide not just for pastors, but for their families as well. The families of the ministers of God's word. Of course, unbelievers are not required to provide for it, but the recipients of the gospel who come to faith are required to support those who do that gospel ministry among them. Some churches sell off property to pay for their ministers or run fates and that kind of thing, which is not the spirit of what... That's funny for us. <laughs> yes. is not the um, spirit of what Paul is saying here. Um, it's, it's the recipients of the gospel. We have a responsibility to pay for it. Some, yeah. So Paul is saying we ought to do that from our own resources so that we share those resources with those who bring us spiritual resources. 
And it's not appropriate to go to unbelievers to appeal uh, for them to pay for our ministries. It's the responsibilities of those who receive the ministry to provide for those who minister among them and for their families. And here it's not about giving 10% per se. It's got to do with providing adequately for those who work hard among us with God's word. And it, if it costs more than 10%, it costs more than 10%. If it costs less than 10%, it costs less than 10%. Paul's point here isn't about tithing as such. Not that that's a problem. But here he's talking about another reason, and that is to provide adequately for the ministry of God's word. Material support in response to the spiritual benefit we're receiving. Uh, support for pastors and their families. Now, if you don't think that what you're receiving is of spiritual benefit, that's a different story entirely. But if it does benefit us spiritually, then that is, that is of more benefit to us than the resources we may have to share with the people who are doing the ministry with us. But financial giving is fundamental to church life and to discipleship to Christ. We see this again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And when the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, we more and more value gospel ministry and we more and more want to give to gospel ministry, sharing all good things with those who've shared with us the greater things of the gospel. Now, I think in terms of our church and also in terms of camp speakers or a visiting preacher, if they're living off the gospel, they should be paid for the ministry. We should offer them the fellowship of physical resources and money when they come. If they refuse it, that's their decision, but we ought to offer it. Where to take responsibility for it. And I guess we should weigh up um, in terms of what we're doing with our money here at SOMA. It's our responsibility to work out what each of us will give. Uh, in many parts of the world, pastors and preachers are paid a minimal rate. In other parts, their work is valued and rewarded. That can bring other problems, of course, but at least those churches are taking this principle seriously. But there are many places, including in many affluent countries, where it's considered good for pastors to be paid poorly in case they do it for the wrong reasons. And I don't think Paul would have any time for that attitude if Christian people are receiving, um, are giving as we should, Paul might have said a church as little as 10 could pay for a minister at the same level of their own average income. There are two issues when it comes to money. There's the whole direction we want to go in as a church and providing materially and financially for that. But there's also the issue of our own discipleship to Jesus this is a spiritual issue, something that he is calling upon us to be involved in. This is a spiritual issue that we are generous with our money and support adequately the ministry of the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, in the next couple of months, we want to set out a plan for SOMA and we're going to call people to be giving to that plan. And you may be surprised to learn, as I was, that only half of our church is giving regularly to our church. Only half. So we want all of our members to think very seriously and carefully about what their financial contribution will be. 
uh, because this is a spiritual issue. And a lot of people don't connect the fact that our pastoral team does need to be paid. We kind of know and we kind of don't. And we benefit from all this training, this teaching, this leadership, this organising, this planning. And our staff needs to be supported or we can't do it. But secondly, Paul's actions are that he doesn't use his rights. He doesn't accept any money. Verse 6, he says he works for his living himself. He was a tent maker. Uh, verse 12, he says, we didn't, I didn't use these rights to be supported. And in verse 15, I'm not even seeking those, that support from you. I don't want it. <laughs> Please don't pay me. I refuse to be paid by you. Paul doesn't use his rights, but rather he gives free service. Verse 18, he preaches the gospel free of charge, so that verse 19, he might be free, free from all people. He isn't indebted to anybody. He doesn't want to be. He wants to not owe anybody anything. No one can hold it over Paul. Paul is not indebted to one single person um, at all. Rather, he gives his service freely and free of charge um, so that he is not a slave to anybody. But notice the nature of his freedom is he voluntarily makes himself a slave to all people. That's how he exercises his freedom. I owe nobody anything. Therefore, I'm going to give my life to everyone. Um, that's what he wants to do. I'm going to pay them everything I've got, uh, although I don't owe a thing. Verse 19, though I am free and belong to nobody, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. That's his purpose. He wants to see people come to know Christ through the gospel. And so to the Jew, he becomes a Jew. To those under the law, which is the Jews, under the Torah, the law of Moses, he becomes one, he becomes as one under the law of Moses. For those outside the law, which is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, he becomes as one outside the law. To those who are weak, which I think are those who have moral scruples like the weak Tim spoke of last week who think things are wrong that are not wrong. To those who are weak, he becomes as one who is weak. To all people, he becomes like one of them, whoever they are. That's his enormous flexibility. And he's doing it all that he may win some to Christ. He'll become like anybody and do anything in order to win them for the gospel. Now, we mustn't push that too far. Of course, he doesn't become sinful to win the sinners. He doesn't become a thief to win thieves. He doesn't become a blackmailer to win blackmailers. There are limits to his flexibility. But in terms of Jews, Gentiles and the weak, he becomes like them in order to win them. So when he's with Jews, he lives as a Jew. He prays as a Jew. He wears what they wear. He eats what they eat. He respects their traditions and their sensibilities. Or as we see in Acts, he went up to Jerusalem. He took a vow and had his head shaved uh, in keeping with the law. 
And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul has Timothy circumcised because Timothy's mother is Jewish. So people would know that Timothy is Jewish, but his father is Greek, so Timothy had not been circumcised as a boy. But Paul wants Timothy to be able to join in the ministry to the Jews because his ministry was first to the Jews to go to the synagogues and then go to the Greeks. So Timothy is circumcised. Not because he needs to be uh, for his status in Christ's family, not for his salvation, but rather for the needs of the mission, which is uh, that Paul wants to respect the sensibilities of the Jews. But then when Paul is with Gentiles, he's quite happy to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols and so on. He's happy to do certain things, not everything. He won't do wrong. But when he's invited out to dinner with somebody who is not Jewish, he's not going to say, no, I can't come because I can only eat kosher. Paul wouldn't do that. He would go out with those people and eat with them. And so he goes out and has these big sweet and sour pork meals uh, with others and, uh, you know, fried rice and prawns, which would finish him if he was under the law, right? Uh, but he lives as the Gentiles live in order to bring the Gentiles to faith in Christ. He voluntarily gives up his rights and freedoms for their sake. And this is how he makes himself a slave to all people. He's not living the way Paul wants to live. Um, he's living the way the Jews want to live. He's living the way the Gentiles want to live. He's living the way the weak person wants to live. But that's not being inconsistent because the way Paul really wants to live is to be in service to these people so that they become Christians. And so I'm happy to change myself and my lifestyle and everything to that I, that I do, whether I charge or don't charge or offer it freely or do this or that, it's all about what is the best thing for me to bring the gospel to people. So he's, he's not just inconsistent, he's consistent with his gospel mission. And so he says, verses 24 to 27, this involves self-discipline. It's the sort of self-discipline where we have to sort out our priorities. What's the most important thing for us in life? Everything else is then relativized. And he says, think of the athletics track. I want you to be focused like an athlete who is aiming for the gold medal. And if you're doing that, all sorts of other things cease to matter. They don't matter anymore. If you're in training for some big athletics event, there's all sorts of stuff that you don't eat or you don't do. Not because they're bad things, <laughs> but because you're focused on that particular goal of winning the gold medal. And this is the spiritual challenge for every Christian in every country and every culture. This is the spiritual challenge of our gospel communities. Look and see what you need to do to share the gospel with your world and regard barriers to that in the same way that you would regard things that get in your way if you are training for a major athletic event. In other words, cast aside anything which is preventing you from the mission that Christ has called you to. 
and from people responding to the gospel. And Paul says the goal is winning people to Christ. And it's important. And I'll happily give up my freedoms and my rights to save these people. I'll live their style of life for the sake of these people. The goal is perfectly clear. Verse 12, he won't put, aside, put any obstacle in the way um, of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is of such preeminent importance to Paul that he won't allow anything to stand in the way of that gospel. And although he has the right to work, he goes and works and works long hours and hard work so that the gospel may clearly come home. And although he doesn't have to obey the law of Moses, he's willing to obey the regulations of the law of Moses so as to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although he can freely go into the temples and eat the meat that's been offered to the idols, he refrains from that so that he can bring the gospel to those who have weak consciences in that area of life. He holds himself in check for the sake of the gospel because he sees the enormous importance of winning people to Christ for them to be saved. And so he won't compromise for wrong reasons, but he will compromise for the right reason. And he's not changing his patterns of behaviour, you know, because of social pressure or something like that. He's not doing it for the wrong reason. He's doing it for the right reason, the gospel. Nor is he doing it out of legalism. No, he's not under the law. Nor is he doing it out of licentiousness. No, he's not somebody who is lawless. No, he does it for the sake of the gospel, that people may be saved. And so he never compromises his conscience and he will forego his desires. He will forego the kind of way he would prefer to live. He will forego his rights he will forego his freedoms so that people can hear and understand the gospel. Think of it in terms of our own lives. If you're reaching homeschoolers, you may decide to become a homeschooler yourself with all that that entails, if that is what you decide. And you will adjust your lifestyle around that mission to homeschoolers. If you're reaching organic gardeners, if you're reaching rock climbers, if you're reaching musicians. It means a lifestyle change in order that the gospel may come to those people. We don't want any barriers to people understanding the gospel and coming to hear the gospel. And this will mean um, a change of how we live in our gospel communities. It is not simply a matter of we have the life that we'd like to live over here. And so we'll try and fit our mission in around that. It's more like that we try to fit our lifestyle around the mission that Christ has given us. And so we need to be flexible. We need to understand what this will mean. And I hope that Chris will give us many, many examples next week of how this can happen. But the point today for me is just Paul's point that becoming Christians is absolutely important for him. It's of enormous significance and therefore he's willing to become all things to all people for the sake of Christ. 
That involves us doing all kinds of things we would not normally do. But we want to do them because we want to see people one for Christ, which is far, far more important than our lifestyle. Free slavery (laughs) is what it's all about. And so thirdly, we understand Paul's rationale. He's free. As he says in verses 15 to 18 that I skipped over, he's beyond necessity. He does it voluntarily. Yes, there's a sense in which there is a necessity that God has called him to do this, to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And yet he wants to do it freely and voluntarily. And he says, I've got something I can boast about. And it's the fact that I do it freely. You know, I'm, no one is supporting me in this. I'm giving it free of charge. And I'm going to be rewarded for that. Because I did it voluntarily. That's how he did it. And what's his reward? It's not a five-star crown. It's not a sapphire in the middle of his crown. His reward is that he gets to do it for free. And secondly, he gets to see people come to know Jesus Christ and share in that way with the blessings of the gospel, verse 23. That's what motivates him. That he can say, I did it freely, and that he sees people come to know Jesus. That's his joy. That's why he's willing to serve other people. That's why he's willing to lay down his life. He gets to see others come to Christ. And where to be imitators of Paul? Who is an imitator of Christ himself? For Christ did exactly that. Left his lifestyle in heaven with God the Father and took on our lifestyle in order to reach us and all the rights and privileges that he had to let go of so that we could know the truth about God and be saved. And he did it even to the point of death on a cross. And so giving up our rights may not be super glamorous at times, but it is super glorious. Uh, We are voluntary slaves for the sake of the gospel. And we see enormous things happen as people come to know Jesus Christ. Amen.